Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Rachel Joy Welcher. She's a columnist and editor at Fathom Magazine and the author of two books of poetry, Blue Tarp and Two Funerals, Then Easter. Her writing has appeared in Fathom Magazine, The Gospel Coalition, Mere Orthodoxy, Relevant, and the Inglewood Review of Books. Her book, which we'll be talking about a lot today, Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality, released back in November of 2020, and it's absolutely phenomenal. I could not put it down, and I'm so excited to share my conversation with Rachel. She brings in some incredible points about purity culture, the way that Christians tend to view sex and how they teach about it, and the importance of community in discussions like these. So definitely stay tuned all the way through the end. She gives some amazing tips, and definitely, definitely, definitely pick up a copy of Talking Back to Purity Culture. It's available right now. Just head over to the show notes. I've got a link to it right now on Amazon where you can pick it up. It is an amazing book and well worth your time. All right, guys, let's get into the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Rachel on the show with us today. Um, so look, some of my audience is probably cheering on just the fact that we're going to be talking about purity culture. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's also going to be a lot of people that are listening that are going like, why this subject, like why attack a, you know, probably a good thing, something that was well-intentioned. No one's trying to harm anyone with it. Why dive into the topic of purity culture in the first place? Let's just get that out of the way. What's so important about this topic specifically? Hmm. Well, I think it, it's had an influence. Um, so I'm 34 and I grew up as a pastor's daughter. I grew up in the church and it had an influence in some positive ways, but also some very damaging ways. And so I think it's like anything else that we do as fallible human beings. We have to um, look back in hindsight and say, did we get it right? Mm. Were we really teaching biblical truths? Uh, where did we go wrong? And how can we do better moving forward? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really it's really interesting because I have a lot of people that reach out from the show and they cite purity culture kind of at a, a kind of broadly, you know, like purity culture is very damaging, especially with a lot of sexual abuse survivors um, or or even just people that I guess survive being a woman in evangelical culture. It feels like there was this there was kind of this push of of purity, and um, I, I guess kind of starting off like what. What do you think initiated that push? Do you think it was a positive thing in the beginning that became like just lost its way as we kept writing about it and trying to think of ways to, to push that agenda? Or is it something you think from the beginning, it was kind of a flawed concept in the way that we tried to structure it? Well, it definitely started out with fear. So it was a, a response to fear uh, coming out of the 70s and 80s, you know, of STDs and teen pregnancy. And so it was an understandable fear that parents had. They wanted to protect their kids. Um, and so we can understand that. But I think that when you uh, have a foundation of fear, it's never going to go very well. Um, and so because you're going to end up, the pendulum's going to swing too far in one direction or the other. So that's what happened. I think it started out as a desire to, to keep kids abstinent, um, to prevent some of these things from happening. <clears throat> but then the message of abstinence and particularly virginity took on a life of its own, apart from what scripture says and the gospel. So it's biblical to talk about sex belonging in marriage, but it's not biblical to talk about virginity as this spiritual status, as this symbol of wholeness, um, as though those who have lost their virginity or have had it stolen from them are less whole or less valuable. What's kind of the, when, when you're looking at the church broadly, obviously grew up in a, a pastor's daughter, you grew up kind of hearing a lot of this teaching, you know, if not in the home, you heard it at conferences at, at different churches and things. Um, if you had to boil it down, what would you say, and this is a big thing to boil down, but what would you say is kind of the primary teaching of purity culture that you would say is misses the mark versus, you know, maybe when you look at scripture now and you look at it, like how do the two differ between how the church talks about it and how scripture talks about it? Purity culture essentially taught a uh, prosperity gospel. So the mm. message was, if you save yourself from marriage, you will get married. You'll have mind blowing sex from night one. You'll have children with kids. And so it was very much an exchange, like do this and you will get these things. And so it, it removed <clears throat> grace, it removed the gospel, it removed the glory of God from the equation. And it became very much about earning um, future prizes for current restraint. And so um, it was very much a prosperity purity gospel, um, which is unbiblical. And I think that that sort of gained steam like a snowball over time. Um, books started being written um, about these topics, conferences, and it took on a life of its own. What Christians realized, I think, is that they wanted to have a sexier carrot to dangle in front of teenagers than God's glory. And so they decided to say that, you know, saving yourself for marriage would guarantee these things. And of course, it could be that someone who saved themselves for marriage will have a great sex life and children and stay married. But in my case, um, I was divorced at age 29 and I met the guy in Bible college and I followed all the rules. And so what my generation is grappling with is the lack of fulfillment of these promises. Yeah. There's a lot of people I've talked to who have that moment where they get married and they think this is going to solve all the problems. Like the desire to want to do this, it's going to solve, it's, it's going to, it's going to be ultra fulfilling. It's going to change everything. This thing I've been waiting for. And, you know, it, 
I've, I've known a lot of guys and girls who've talked about it to, to me and my wife that have gotten into these relationships and they're going, oh, the sex was not what we expected. It's it, like you said, it's, it's hard to have kids. It's, there's a lot of trust issues. Like there's expectations. I didn't know were there. It is, it's, it's a, it's kind of a train wreck for a lot of people when it really shouldn't be, it really shouldn't be this really horrific thing, but it ends up being that in, in a lot of cases. Um, but yeah, I, I like what you said about it being almost a sexier carrot to dangle in front of people. And it really is, I know for, I know from the male perspective, it was like the reason to wait, to do anything. Like it was like, Hey, you know, don't look at porn because when you get married, you can, you can do this and don't, don't do this because when you get married, you'll be able to do this. And, and it was just this waiting game. And so on the one hand, you have this very strict kind of I guess, puritanical kind of view of everything. And like, we don't talk about it. Hush, hush. Right. Also it was talked about a lot. Like sex is talked about a ton by, you know, the youth pastor talking about how hot his wife is, has become the, you know, the meme or the, the pastor talking about, you know, making jokes about sex from the pulpit while also saying like, don't do this. Like, this is great. This is great. Don't do this. So I'm kind of curious in your book, you kind of wrote that like growing up in the purity culture, you know, sex and marriage are placed on a pedestal. And we think about sex being on a pedestal in like, you know, hookup culture, whatever you want to call it, but never in purity culture. Like, why do you think churches don't seem to see that issue on Hmm. both sides of the coin? I think that's a really important question because what we have seen is that sex is an obsession in secular culture and in purity culture. Um, But I think that when we put it inside the context of marriage, it seems like it's safe. Um, But what happened is, you know, you talked about people getting married and being almost disappointed and disenchanted. The reason is because sex and marriage were set up as an idol. They were set up on a pedestal and anything that's set on a pedestal will fall. And so sex and marriage are good things, but, and and they're gifts from God. But when we talk about them as rewards or the ultimate fulfillment or um, as the cure for lust and all all these things, the expectations that I think we as Christians placed on marriage and sex in marriage um, just set future marriages up for disaster. It it almost in a way, because this is something I started thinking about early on in, in doing the podcast is like it almost sexualizes women just as much as any of the other extreme that people point to. Like people talk about, you know, the, the way people dress in, in certain music videos, or they talk about all these different things. And like, I look back at people I grew up with from early ages, like five, six, seven, and, you know, being taught like your dress should touch the the tip of your fingers. If your hands are by your side Mm -hmm. and, and you need to be this length, you need to be thinking about this. Like, and now as a parent, I look back and I'm like, why from such an early age was that like the one defining characteristic of every female that grew up in the church environment around me was like how pure they were. Like that was kind of the the go-to measurement for what kind of person they were. And I, again, I think a lot of times we miss that. We sexualize women just as much in a hyper purity culture as we do within kind of a you know, whatever you want to call it, whatever hookup culture or, or fill in the blank with whatever name you want to put there. Well, that's, that's exactly what I discovered when I went back and read the books of my youth, the purity books was that women were kind of in two, two categories. They were either stumbling blocks to purity in singleness. You know, you need to avert your eyes. You need to ignore them. You need to zap them. One book said, 
um, <clears throat> instead of learning to view them as sisters in all purity. But then the other category was their wives and they're your sexual outlets. And both views of women are so dehumanizing um, to women as a whole. And like you said, it's, it's very sexualizing of women that we are only our bodies, we are only our sexual function, and that um, the height of spirituality for us is to make sure that we don't tempt men by accident or on purpose. Um, and so, and it was the same for men though, that I think men were boiled down to their sexual function in that almost all the books for young men during that era, and even today, when you go to a Christian bookstore, so many of them are about lust. They're not about um, knowing the attributes of God or about the book of Hebrews or about, you know, all these other things about scripture as a whole, it's almost all about lust. And so the young men I interviewed who are now my age, when they were young, they said that they basically, they were shaped by this idea that their entire identity was just this, um, constant need to suppress their sexual urges that they were told were almost uncontrollable. But no, we were talking about this last night and I said, it's, it was such a strange thing growing up because you, you're getting this messaging that you are this, you know, guys are this sex crazed and, and kind of animalistic person right. that, that can, like, if you use all of your strength, you can control this, this urge that you have. But then on the other hand too, like you're not told anything helpful or meaningful about how to engage with the idea of sex. You're not taught. I mean, in my background, wasn't really taught anything helpful theologically or just basic life principles and some of those things. And so you're seeing there just basically like in your book, you talk about the whole dragon princess dynamic. Mm -hmm. Like you're basically taught, like you're a dragon, like you are, you're, or you're a warrior, you know, that's the more common right. language. You're, you're the, you're the tough um, I, I remember at a conference, like they used to talk about, you know, guys are that they would say guys are the microwaves and girls are the crockpots and guys are this and guys love the physical and girls love the mental and like all these things that, you know, you're being taught it. So you accept it as truth, but then you get into an actual relationship and you're like, oh, right. this is not helpful. Like this did not prepare me in, in any way whatsoever. And it, it's very confusing, I think, for you know, Sheila Gregoire does a good job talking about this, but men are being taught that you're basically a meth addict and your wife is going to be your fix. And then on the other hand, women are taught you better be that fix or you're not doing your job and you're responsible for any other outlet that he takes to quote, fulfill that urge. That, and that has been such a devastating thing that I've seen over the years is that women feel guilty when they're, they find out that their husband is using pornography or even when he cheats, um, assuming that it must have had something to do with her slacking in her duties. Um, and, and not only women feeling guilty, but churches actually blaming women. Um, you know, what did you do to make him have to go somewhere else? And this is just so unbiblical. You know, mm. in scripture, we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery. He's holding people accountable for their own actions in their heart. No. But we've taken it and decided that women are the cause and so it confuses culpability. And this is where it gets into, you know, the main topic of your podcast, which is what do you do when um, sexual abuse takes place, but the woman is blamed? That does not just happen in secular culture. It happens within the Christian context and within purity culture. And I really believe that some of the messages that we communicated in purity culture have led to, um, you know, further victimization of women. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, can you can you go a little deeper on that? Like, because I'm I'm kind of that that's that's what that's the question kind of raised in my mind because I I'm seeing all these books being written about purity culture, sexuality in the church. Um, I mean, tons of incredible books are being written on sex abuse. I mean, I've I've gotten to talk to a lot of amazing people that are talking through, you know, Sheila Gregoire with The Great Sex Rescue, Tiffany right. Bloom's book Pray Tell. And there's some great books that are being written. Did did the current state of like sexual abuse in the church, all these stories coming out, did that help fuel the decision to write this specific book at this time? Or was that something that as you're writing it, you're like, oh wait, this does play a big part in kind of the the church to me too kind of thing that we're seeing happen right now. Well, I started my research for this book about four years ago. And so um, when I started, I wasn't aware of some of these books and these conversations. And it was obviously the Me Too movement was in full swing. Um, the main reason I actually started my research, it was my for my um, Master of Divinity at St. Andrews is what I did. That's This is what I studied. I wanted to know specifically what the books of my youth said to victims of sexual abuse. That was what started it all, is that I had some friends who were struggling with false guilt over things that had been done to them. And I've worked with teenagers for years. I was a high school teacher for 10 years. And I really wanted to delve into what does it mean, you know, these devastating images, these metaphors that we used in youth group of the rose passed around the room or the used car or the, the water that gets spit in. What does that say to people who had their virginity stolen from them? Um, we say, oh, well, if you didn't do it, then, you know, this isn't about you. But those images are so devastating. You're still being told that you're less whole as a person. You have less to offer. The books for women almost all said that the greatest gift you could give your future spouse is your virginity. And man, that really defined my generation. So it wasn't um, a heart dedicated to Christ. It wasn't a repentant, humble spirit. It was virginity, this specific physical state that we don't always have control over. And even those who had given for, had forfeited their virginity, had sinned sexually, had been forgiven. But they still had these images of a crumpled up rose. And that was what we thought our worth was. <laughs> I, I was going to say your your book has one of the, um, probably one of my, my favorite quotes of all the books I've been reading in the last, last little bit. And uh, you were talking about, uh, you were talking about, uh, I think it was a, I think it was a student. Yeah. It was students on picture day was the mm -hmm. context at the school you're working at. And one of the staff had, had basically gone after them about what they were wearing. And, and, you know, you talked about <clears throat> the feeling of being a stumbling block and, and all of those kind of mental things that go through your mind as a, as a woman growing up in this culture. And, I, I love the quote that the rhetoric is confusing to young women. Are men brave princes or are they dragons that must be tamed? Or maybe women are the dragons. And then you have a, you have a quote here that says, imagine growing up in a castle and hearing fables about dragons, destroy villages and kill good people all your life. Then one day you wake up and see scales in your arms and legs and realize I'm a dragon. The fairy tale falls apart. We look at our bodies and feel ashamed. And like reading that quote and like thinking about all the rhetoric, rhetoric I had heard, like, you think about that, the idea of passing a rose around, like look at it losing its value or, or um, we, we would often hear the, you know, crumpling up a hundred dollar bill and it's like, look, it's a hundred dollar bill, but now it's dirty and used and like, it has the same value, but look at it. Like it's not a pristine, perfect bill. And it's, it's, that's terrifying rhetoric to hear because one, if you do 
have that feeling of like, oh, I'm going to mess up. Like I'm the stakes are huge. And then also if you're with somebody who, you know, potentially has done something or, or, you know, whatever the case may be, it limits their value in your mind at the same time. It's a pretty, it's a pretty startling thing to think about. It is. And it's, it's very anti-gospel if we think about it, because our purity isn't something that can be dented, right? Um, our righteousness comes from Christ. And so he is the source of our purity mm. and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it's not to say that we shouldn't pursue sexual purity, but we're going to pursue it very fallibly. We will fall. We will ask for forgiveness and get back up again. Um, but if we believe what the gospel says, which is that we wear Christ's righteousness, then we're never a crumpled rose hmm. in Christ. We're never a dented car. And so I really do believe that we replaced the truth of the gospel with works righteousness to get kids to not have sex before marriage. And I do believe that not that saving sex for marriage is a good thing. Um, I absolutely believe that's what I would teach my children, but I would also teach them that there's forgiveness in Christ and that um, our sexuality isn't the definition of our worth. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting hearing this now because I mean, again, growing up in, in kind of the fundamentalist world, it was like, when you heard the word gospel, the gospel was a very specific transactional thing that happened to do with Mm -hmm. your justification. Like it was like, Oh, now I'm a Christian. And then everything past that was on you. Like, it was like the gospel was the gospel was, Hey, you don't want to go to hell, get your fire insurance. Here you go. And then everything past that was now you need to maintain that persona and you need to live like that. And, um, I even heard a, I even heard a youth pastor from a pretty large, uh, church up in California. And he gave the idea of like, okay, you have this value you're given in Christ and now you can add to or subtract from that value by what you're doing. I'm going to give some Austin some money today. And Austin, when you get saved, you get some value out of your life. You leave that other money, you leave that in your pocket right there and just keep that. All right, so now you got $20. Okay, that you get saved, you go to church and you live for the Lord, you read your Bible, you, get, you add some more value to your life. Um, you, you choose in your life to live purely and to wait for the right mate and, and to live purely for that mate. Uh, there's some more value that's added to your life. Oh, oh I see you've been praying and uh, you've been asking God to help you and you, you've been leaning on him for strength. And there's some more value that's added to his life. And, you want to go out soul winning? You want to lead people to the Lord? Oh, thank you for, for doing that. That's value added to your life. God looks at us and says, look, they're adding value. They're, they're doing what I said. They're obeying my word. Oh, my goodness, Austin, you've got some money there, and you're adding some value to your life. And, and now you're a teenager, and you might want to do some things on your own, but you still decide to honor and love your parents, and there's some more value. Yeah, the Bible says honor and love your parents. And uh, You know, you like to do things for your youth pastor, and uh, you know, help your youth pastor's wife out and maybe wash their car and take care of, you know, their kids or do, do whatever. I don't know what it would be, but maybe there's some more value added there. Um, Austin, you decide to join the choir and you're in special music groups and uh, you just decide that, you know, whatever God wants for you, you that's what you want. You surrender to God. Uh, you don't know what that is, but you surrender to him. Oh, man, you got a lot of value there. Um, you decide to go to Bible college and, and you decide to say, whatever, Lord, you want for me, I want as well. Now, he's got a salvation. But Austin's got a lot of value that's added to his life right here. What happens as Christians, teenagers, listen. When we choose to do things that dishonor God, when we choose to do things that don't respect the salvation that he has given to us, we devalue our lives. You see, he's got all this value. He's making the right choices. He's living for the Lord. He's learning. 
He's learning from his failures. He's learning from mistakes. He's not getting frustrated. But then he decides to give some of that value away. And uh, Austin, maybe you've been gossiping about your classmates. I know that's what they say about you. So take away a little bit of value. You still got a lot, you know, but you didn't start it, but you joined in. You know, you didn't start the, the conversation, but someone else started it, and you, you, you kind of commented, and you agreed. Well, a little bit of value has been taken away. Um, you decide to maybe skip up a couple mornings of your Bible reading. Hey, listen, young person today, if, if you struggle with that, we all, maybe we all struggle with that, but, but keep on going. But you decide to do it on purpose, and you decide you have other important things, and you take even a little bit more value away, and oh my, it's, that's not a lot, but it's starting to add up. Still got a lot there. And then he begins to get frustrated with mom and dad or whoever, whoever you know, right now, whoever's his authority. And he begins frustrated with them and uh, begins to lash out and not you know, understand and uh, a little bit more value is taken away. And then Austin, I hope this doesn't happen, but maybe you, you get online and you're into some things online that you shouldn't be, online, uh, shouldn't be involved in. And maybe you're looking at things and partake, uh, partaking in some things that not. And that's, that's going to diminish a lot of value. Oh, that's, that's, that's a lot of value, a lot of 20s right there that I just took out of his hand. Um, he decides to skip teen soul winning um, and decides that that's a choice now. He's going to do some other things and focus on some other areas of his life. And, um, he begins to you know, date someone who's unsaved and uh, says it doesn't really matter and there's a little bit of value taken away. And What happens is we have great value in our life, but he's left with not much. Not much. He's got his salvation, but he gave his value away. Can I ask you today, young person? Awesome, you can have a seat. Thank you so much. What are you going to do with the value that God has placed upon your life? At the time you think about it, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, so now I need to make sure I keep my virginity and I do this and I have all these steps. But the way you're talking about the gospel for some people listening might be revolutionary. Like it might be this thing of what does the gospel have to do with sex? What does the gospel have to do with, you know, my purity or or this? Like, so when you're talking about the gospel, you know, what does the gospel tell us that, that affects how we view purity culture, how we view our, our standing, whether we've been, you know, mm-hmm. for someone who's been sexually abused and feels like they are that crumpled rose or for someone who feels like, you know, Hey, I did this and I feel this overwhelming amount of guilt because of my religious background. Like right. what does the gospel say that makes it relevant to this conversation? I think going back even before the gospel, when God formed the world and formed humankind, we were given the Imago Dei, right? The image of God. And I think we have to start there. That's something that cannot be changed. Every single person is born in the image of God and you can, your actions don't uh, diminish that. And so Christian or not, we are all image bearers. And I think it's really important that we start there, that we have dignity innate in us, God given. But the gospel says that even in your sin, even in your fallenness, sexual and otherwise, when you repent before Christ, he takes those sins on himself. He already did. He took them on the cross and they are no more. They're forgiven. He paid the price. And so this idea, it's so interesting the way you're describing the gospel, the way you heard it growing up, because I think that's very common in churches where it's like, it's just the starting point, And then you need to keep climbing the ladder. <clears throat> of course, we see in scripture that we're to pursue holiness, that we are to obey, but there's also so much in scripture that acknowledges, uh, including the main characters in scripture, <laughs> where we see that they fall and God forgives and still loves them um, and still holds them up as examples for us. And so I think it's just so important that we recognize that 
The gospel is a free gift that we could never earn. And it's very humbling um, to realize that no matter how much we try, we would never be able to be pure on our own. But Christ is our source of purity. He is our righteousness. And Christ is the perfect lamb of God. And so essentially, no matter what we do as Christians, we wear his righteousness. And we can boldly approach the throne of God because of that. The first time I ever heard uh, the term, like the gospel is for your sanctification, not just your justification. And I just remember it was like a, it was like an atomic bomb went off in my brain. Cause I was like, up to that point, that was always the, it was like, now you're a Christian live like it, you know? And it's like, I don't know how, you know, like that's what everyone's trying to do in the first place is like, I, I want to live the right way, or I want to do things that aren't harmful, but I think it's important to grasp that. And I think it's, I think it's interesting reading through the book how much you're going back to, you know, what does the gospel say about who we are? Like having that conversation about our inherent dignity and the inherent dignity is something that gets skipped over so much in so much of the writing that's been done. I'm sure you've researched plenty of books in prepping this where you see that kind of thing of like, you've got this limited amount of value here and like, there's no putting anything into it. Like it's just withdrawals and how much are you going to have left to give to that future spouse or just to hold on to for yourself. And, um, and I, I really appreciate that in the book. And I, I'm kind of curious because that was one of the things when I, when I first read the title of your book, not aware of who you were, not aware of the context or the background, there was part of me that was wondering what perspective it was written from. You know, when I saw talking back to purity culture, I was like, I didn't know if it was a Christian perspective. I didn't know if it was a former Christian. I didn't know if it was, um, I, I didn't know what that angle was. And um, I, I was fascinated to see, um, I think it was, it was one of the endorsements um, that I had seen. And I, w- I was shocked. I was like, oh, okay, so I kind <laughs> of know a sense of where this is from. And, um, but, but I'm kind of curious, like, this is a very taboo subject. This is something that has very deep, hold and and roots within the evangelical world when you announced it when you started writing it when you even when it released have you gotten any kind of pushback or like negative feedback from the kind of christian community with how you've talked about the subject or even addressing it in the first place yeah you know i i've gotten some pushback from conservative christians and i've gotten some pushback from more progressive christians so it means you're probably in a good spot (laughs) (laughs) yeah right (laughs) Um, I think initially, you know, it's, it's really sweet. My parents have been so supportive. Uh, they were not the ones who peddled purity culture to me. It was the books that I read and youth group and such. But, um, but I remember in the very beginning, when I started doing my research, I was posting some things on social media and my mom sent me a text and said, don't say sex on Facebook. <laughs> and we were, I started laughing and I said, mom, buckle up because I'm going to have to say that word because I, you know, this is what I'm going to research for the next few years. And um, they ended up being just incredibly supportive. But I think that there have been Christians who've been skeptical because of the title. I've had Christians um, say, you know, why of all the things, why would you attack something good? Mm. And I said, oh my goodness, I do not want to attack the idea of purity or um, God's sexual ethic. I want us to do better moving forward. I want us to be more biblical. And I think that's, that's the goal of my book was not to rewrite God's sexual ethic, but was to say, here are ways that we veered from scripture and we have taught something that is anti-gospel that has nothing to do with the glory of God. And we need to get back to what scripture says, and we need to do better. 
And frankly, I'm tired of people trying to find the answers to this in books read alone, you know, hit slid under a teenager's door. We need to be talking about these things in community. Um, we need to know that the lonely widow and the teenager who's struggling have something in common and they can pray for one another. And so I think it's something that we need to recognize that scripture talks about it. And so the fact that it's taboo, that's, that's not biblical. Um, Mm. sexuality is common to man. It's God created and we all experience it differently and we're in different stages of life. But I think it's so important that we talk about it more widely and not just in these little clumps at this little, you know, one conference for teenagers or, you know, this one talk between a parent and child, but that we recognize that it's something we all deal with. It's not just for adolescents. Purity is a lifelong calling. Hmm. Do you, do you, feel like, and this is a little bit of a, an offshoot, but I'm kind of curious, you mentioned like your parents didn't peddle the kind of purity culture stuff, but it was definitely in the books you're reading and uh, the resources you had, the conferences you were going to, like, did you feel like there was a kind of talking to your parents now and when you started researching the book, which I think is funny that she didn't want you to say sex on Facebook. So you just wrote (laughs) a whole book about it. Um, But, but did you feel like there was almost a like you were being told something that maybe your parents didn't even know you were being told or taught because mm-hmm. sometimes I talk about, I, I talk about some of the crazier things I heard growing up and the things that were taught and the things that left an impression. Cause there's things I remember messages. I remember clear as day about a variety of topics that, mm-hmm. that had very harmful connotations. And I'll say something to my, my, my mom usually, and I'll say, it was crazy that they taught this. And she'd be like, they taught you that, <laughs> you know, did you feel like there were a lot of those things as you kind of started unpacking this with your parents now where they're like, who taught you that? Like, where did you hear yes. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting. And I think it's because so many of us were reading the same books, but we were reading them alone. Yeah. So interesting. So like everyone was reading, I kiss dating goodbye, but we weren't having book clubs about it. We weren't analyzing it and thinking about the worldview and what we agreed and disagreed with. We just ate it whole. And, and I think that was one of the main problems is that, you know, our parents, they just saw a Christian author about a good topic. Here you go. And what happened is that we read these books in isolation and we internalized some of these messages in really screwed up ways. Um, and we're only just now realizing what those messages were. I didn't even realize that I believed some of the things I believed until I looked back and said, wow, I expected things to go this way because I thought that I did, you know, I did good. So I should get good. Hmm. And, um, so I think it's really important. You know, there's a lot of talk about deconstructing well, and people have different meanings for that, but faithful deconstruction looks like saying, what do I believe and how, how close is it to scripture? What does scripture actually say about this? I think that that kind of deconstruction is so important. Um, This is what I was taught. Here's what is biblical and here's what we need to toss Mm. and do differently moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Deconstruction is a term that gets used a lot and Mm. it seems like everyone has their own definition (laughs) of what, of what it looks like. And I think that's kind of the point is that it looks different for, for everybody, but it's, that's one thing that's, that shook me the last, you know, I mean, really the last few months reading through a lot of these books, encountering some of the belief systems that I apparently held very strongly to that. I didn't even realize I did like, it was just kind of second nature. And, you know, there's been, there's been seasons just doing this podcast and like seeing how, um, seeing how Christians respond to sex abuse, seeing how people 
um, I, I told my wife the other day, like, I, I understand how um, non-believers feel, you know, alienated by faith communities, because I said, I feel like that. Like, I'm just talking about sex abuse. And the responses I get from the Christian community are extremely alienating. And I, I said, like, if I wasn't convinced of what I'm convinced of, I said, it would be very easy for me to just say, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. But, but so much of what, um, so much of what's happened and so much of what I've been studying and so much of the books, like your book and reading, reading through so many of the, the different authors I've talked to on, on the show recently is I'll have this moment where I go like, this is awful. Like this belief system is terrible. And you have that split second where you're like, okay, uh, do I just walk away from all of this? And then you go back into scripture and you read it without all those lenses of purity culture. You read it without the lens of A, B, or C, whatever those different filters are. And you're like, it doesn't say this. Like, how did we get so far from this? And like, that's where I do. I have so many, I have so many listeners of the show that have written me. I had someone write me the other day and they said like, bro, how are you still like a Christian? Like, how are you still, you know, this? He's like, I just yeah. don't see it. And I was like, this, if anything, it's just pushed me to want that more because it's pushing me away from all the kind of corporate churchy <laughs> lingo that's been there for so long. And it feels in a way seeing how, um, I, I guess how isolating and how aggressive the kind of evangelical cultures become on so many of these issues, like, it, it makes the Bible look a lot better. Like, like there's a lot more freedom and, and hope in that than there is in the kind of legalistic systems that I grew up in. And that's not a question, but, um, but I wanted to say that because I think that's so important and you hit the nail on the head is like, when you look at like when I kiss dating goodbye, or when you look at these, you know, the top five Christian books on sex, or you look at um, the way that the church has dealt with race relations or all these different topics, like, if you go back to scripture, removing that evangelical lens, it's a very freeing thing, I think, as a, as a believer. Absolutely. And I think there's, there's such a big difference between questioning God and questioning mm. ourselves. What you're doing is you're questioning evangelical practices. You're not questioning God and his infallible word. Um, we are so fallible in our interpretation in the way that these kind mm. of subcultures pick up steam, right. And yeah. become their own message, their own gospel. We absolutely have to be humble enough as Christians to do the work of figuring out what is biblical and what isn't, and that will hurt. And I, a lot of times you'll hear conservative Christians say, why do you keep talking about the negatives in the church? Right. I'm sure you get that feedback. Why, <laughs> why um, expose abuse? It makes the church look bad. But you and I know that what makes the church look bad is if we deny that we are sinful, if we deny um, these things that we've done wrong and pretend that we're holy or that we yeah. always act holy, um, what is good for the church is for us to be honest and truthful and to care about justice and mercy. And that's going to involve shining light on some of the ugly places in evangelicalism hmm. and caring more about the truth of God than our reputation. Right. Yeah. I always say it's not talking about abuse. It makes it look bad. It's the abuse. <laughs> like it's kind of the, that's the thing that looks bad and not talking about it only makes it worse. You know, it's better to just get it out in the open and talk about it. And um, I, I'm kind of curious. I want to pivot the conversation definitely in that direction a little bit, but I, I, I'm just kind of curious. Do you think one of the reasons that these, all these little sub movements pick up so much steam, whether it's the, the, 
warrior guy kind of groups or whether it's the you know the kind of uh, homeschooler type movement mm-hmm. or the the housewife thing or the you know purity culture like all these different offshoots it seems to me and and I'm curious if this is your take on as well it seems to me that it just seems easier to eliminate the tension of conversation by just putting these strict guidelines in place like hey we yeah. just don't do that you wear your skirt to this length you go to this place you don't do this like do you feel like that's why we create so many systems of the church because i just i just don't see it when i'm when i'm reading through scripture i don't see it being like here create all these rigid systems and then find the category you're in and then live in these you know these steps for this age group in this life stage and and frankly we see the pharisees doing that and they're mm. not the example right <laughs> um i think it's exactly what you said i think that we crave clear lines. We crave things to be black and white. We don't like nuance. Um, It scares us, right? It scares our faith. And so to be able to hand a teenager a manual for purity is much more calming to a parent than to actually have to have a really hard conversation or 50 hard conversations. And I'm not bashing parents. I think it's such difficult work. And I think, um, you know, we want to appeal to the experts and say, okay, what's a good book that's been written? They know more about this than me. But the thing is, parents, you can't, you can't hand them a book. Um, You can't hand them my book. If you want to hand your teenager my book, please read it with them. Hmm. Because these are conversations that, that contain nuance and depend on so many different things. And yes, there are clear commands in scripture. And I talk about that in my book. I'm very clear about what I believe is a biblical sexual ethic. And I've gotten lots of criticism on that from people from the left. But um, when it comes to like, how do you date? Or are you allowed to kiss before marriage? These are things that I don't believe we can draw clear and fast lines. Um, We might want to, but it, it requires discernment. And that is a spiritual muscle that we must use. We must develop. And you can't develop that muscle if you were just constantly looking at a list of rules and checking things off. We kind of hinted at kind of the rigid nature of purity culture. And obviously my show is primarily focused on sexual abuse, which is why I was interested in your, in your book, because it's fascinating to me, the dichotomy of purity culture, heavy, like, you know, sex bad until it's good kind of culture. But then we see so much sexual abuse, the Southern Baptist convention. I mean, hundreds of cases have come up with, you know, um, the independent Baptist movement, you know, uh, one newspaper in Texas was able to find, you know, 500 plus cases in, in recent years. And mm-hmm. why does sexual abuse seem so prevalent in a culture that seems very rigid about sexuality and puts these very strong, you know, what they would say are safeguards uh, on sexuality and how, you know, women and men are to be completely separate, six, you know, six inches apart, you know, they were doing social distancing before it was cool. Like, but for some reason, sexual abuse seems just as prevalent, if not more prevalent within kind of church culture. Right. Well, I mean, you've got, you know, Robbie Zacharias was following the Billy Graham rule supposedly. Right. And then all this has come out about the abuse, the sexual abuse he committed. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons, but just a few that come to mind is that Christians really are given this idea that sex is a right. So it's not a right before Mm. marriage, but at some point um, you're working towards something and it's not God's glory, it's sex. And Mm. so I think that, I think some of the singles my age have reached a point where they've said, okay, 
I've been following these rules. I'm still not married. I think I'm just going to have sex. And I believe that there are married men and women who in marriage are saying, well, I waited for this. I deserve it. I don't know what the state of their marriage is, but they're going to take it in any way they, they want to take it, whether that's um, sexual abuse within marriage or sexually abusing others outside of marriage. Um, we need to work on recognizing that sex is not a right. Um, you know, we talk about incels and secular culture, but that uh, entitlement, the sex entitlement exists within Christianity as well. And it can be very dangerous. So that's just one thing that comes to mind. Um, but a lot of it just comes down to the fact that purity culture depicted women as the gatekeepers of sexual purity and as morally superior, which is not true. Men and women are not, neither is superior to the other. We are equal in our um, bearing the image of God and we're equal in our sinfulness. But when you set up women as morally superior, what you're saying is that if a man does something, the woman was supposed to stop it. And so whatever a man does, the woman has failed because they're in charge of sexual purity for both genders. Mm -hmm. And when you think of sexuality that way, sexual abuse just runs rampant. Why has that weight been put on women specifically? And I mean, I know there's, again, there's been a lot of writing being done on this. People are asking this exact question, but why do you feel that all of that weight has been placed on women's shoulders and responsibility for the most part is not on the side of the man aside from, you know, Hey, don't look at porn and don't have sex before marriage. But beyond that, you're free to do what you want to do. I mean, there's a really fascinating book that Sarah Mosliner wrote called Virgin Nation. And she kind of traces the history of um, this teaching of uh, putting virginity and women on a pedestal and, and just how historically there were a lot of different reasons for that. Um, and some of it had to do with suppressing female rights. Some of it had to do with suppressing different races. It's a really good book. Um, but I think it's, it's a misunderstanding of scripture um, that because men and women are different, that women are sexless. We don't see women being sexless in scripture, but some writer decided that someone decided it and it just kind of picked up steam. And it could have to do with the fact that for so many years, um, the main writers of theology have been men, or at least the main writers who are read have been men. Now, so many of the purity culture books that I studied were written by women, but they learned this concept from men. Yeah. And it could be that men decided that, um, that women were sexless and that um, they had the ability to say no where men didn't. And mm. so it was on women. I'm just guessing, yeah. but it'd be part of it. And, and this is just another thing that always fascinates me too, is like, I, I, when I look at these conversations, you know, I understand how men can be behind some of these conversations. I understand the, you know, shifting the responsibility to the women as a man, that makes sense. You know, I understand alleviating some of that, that responsibility for your own self-control and that uh, your that own kind of, you know, maintaining your own, you know, uh, like what you're looking at, what you're thinking about, what you're considering doing. What fascinates me is when I see female authors, like you said, regurgitate that same information and, you know, Sometimes worse too. yeah, some, I mean, there's some Facebook accounts, like I, I'm I know. just saying that people know who I'm talking about. Like there's, there's groups that just 
they push these super harmful, toxic ideas about a lot of different subjects, including sexuality in a, in a lot of ways. What what pushes so many of these like evangelical female authors to or influencers or whatever category you want to say to kind of regurgitate the same harmful rhetoric about their own gender, like about, you know, they're sitting there, like, I doubt that they're feeling the way that they are describing women to feel. I doubt that they really act in the way that they expect women to act. How do they find themselves repeating these harmful messages created oftentimes by men? Gosh, that is a really good question. I don't know. I'd just be guessing. Um, but it could just come back to our natural bent towards works righteousness. Hmm. So women giving other women's rules about how this is how to be the perfect wife. This is how to be the right kind of spouse, um, the right kind of mom. And just our back to what you were talking about, how we're drawn to things being clear and black and white um, and just being drawn to that kind of pharmaceutical mindset. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying women are more drawn to that than men, but that would be my guess is that it's easier to give other women a set of rules than to really um, think through with discernment what, what scripture really says. Right, right. I, so I, I'm kind of curious, like you, you've covered a lot of topics within the book, like a lot of subtopics and, and different, I mean, there's a ton of takeaways by the end of the first chapter. Like I was like just underlining a bunch of different, a bunch of different things. I'm curious. So if, if, you know, if someone was to pick up this book, obviously in a community kind of environment, they're going through it with somebody else. They're, they're looking at this book. If you get this hands into, if you get this book into the hands of, anybody and they're reading through it. Like if you're seeing, they're going like, I hope this is their one big takeaway. I hope it affects this one change in kind of church culture. You know, like what's that thing that you, as you're writing, you're like, I just hope that this sticks. Like if they don't take everything out of it, if they don't, if they disagree with this, this, and this, like, this is the one thing I hope everybody walks away with reading this book. It's hard to narrow it down, but I think that I would want anyone to walk away with a sense of relief. Um, I talk about this conference I attended and, and spoke at on sexuality years ago and how the honesty with which people spoke about these topics in community, um, it just felt like a burden sliding off my shoulders, just knowing that we are all sexual beings, that we all struggle in different ways, and that God's forgiveness has no limits. And so I think just that feeling of freedom and again, not freedom from obedience or freedom from God's word, but freedom in Christ, knowing that none of us is perfect at purity. And that's why Christ had to come, right? Because we aren't perfect in any way. And to just know that this is something that is common to man. We all experience it differently, but we're in this together and you're not alone. And there is freedom in Christ. Uh, you, you mentioned again, the, the not being alone, obviously reading community, what's the best way to start that? Because it is, it's obviously a hard conversation, even for parents and their kids to have for, you know, probably more awkward, even, I don't know, as, now as, now as a parent thinking about it, I'm like, it's probably awkward on both ends of that conversation. Yeah. But, but when you say read about it in community, like, what would you recommend to somebody who's listening and says, Hey, I would love to go through this with somebody from my church or someone, you know, one of my friends, like, how do you start that conversation? Um, how do you encourage people to go through the book? Well, you know, I, I added questions at the end of each chapter, specifically, um, thinking about how hard it is to start these conversations. 
And essentially what I did was I, I said, look, I'm writing this question. So you're asking it out loud, but the focus isn't on you because you didn't make it up. You're not the one, you know, it kind of, but you're definitely thinking it the whole chapter. So here it is. <laughs> so I think that, you know, one way to start, if, if people read my book, for instance, would be to just read it together, either separately and come together and talk about the questions at the end of each chapter. I wrote them specifically to sort of start this kind of conversation and community. And so they're not you know, they're hard questions, but they're not meant to be titillating or sexy. There's nothing sexy about my book. It's not, when I talk about us talking about sexuality and community, I'm not talking about um, married couples sitting around sharing details of their sex life. That, that has nothing to do with this conversation. Right. And please don't. Um, it has to do with us being willing to be open about the fact that our sexuality is common to all of us. And it's, we're not going to hide it in the conversation of what it means to be a whole Christian. It's going to become part of the conversation the way it is in scripture. And that's really, it's a really hard place to start, but I've had multiple book clubs, people reading together. They tend to be gender segregated. Um, I would love to see, you know, a small group at church with men, women, singles, married, divorced, same-sex attracted, teenagers, widows, reading it together and discussing these questions. I think it would be so enriching and so freeing, but I haven't seen it happen yet. <laughs> Yeah. Well, like you said, you can have the conversation and I think you do, you break it down in a, it's, it's not clinical, but it's also not, you know, it doesn't have to, where I see a lot of evangelical books that do try to cover it. They try to push into the, the edginess of it. You know, I remember everyone going through real marriage when, you know, when I first graduated and like, you know, the way that people talked about it, but yeah, I definitely encourage people to go through it. Um, it doesn't have to be a creepy small group. Like it can be like a normal kind of just conversation. Um, but, but yeah, so for, for everyone that's listening, definitely go pick up a copy talking back to purity culture, just buy it now because you're going to forget in like two <laughs> hours. So just buy it. I do that with every Amazon book that gets mentioned, um, <laughs> on a podcast. So, so go pick it up and thank you so much, Rachel, for, for doing this and for, Absolutely. for joining me on the show. Um, I hope some people check it out and really look forward to, to whatever you put out next for sure. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.